This is a challenging time of year for me um, because I'm coming off of a couple of weeks of real rest. Whenever my family schedules a vacation, we always build in a couple extra days because I get grumpy the last two days of vacation because I kind of know I'm returning to the real world. Uh, you know, and so this past couple weeks, it's been like heaven for me. Uh, binge watching The Office with my daughter while doing jigsaw puzzles till three in the morning. This is heaven for yours truly. And so to go back to the world, as much as I like my job, as much as I enjoy being a part of our community, you know, it's been a, it's been a really, really restful couple weeks. So I thank God for that. One of the things that I rediscovered was my love for the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Now, the reason I love that movie so much is because it's one of my favorite nap movies because it's so slow to ramp up that you fall asleep 30 minutes in. Uh, You know what I mean? You know what it's like to have a movie you watch and you love it so much because you can't remember what the middle of it is, but you wake up to the credits rolling at the end. This is the kind of thing I've really enjoyed. And One of the reasons I love Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is is because of the, the old-fashioned chase scene, which is virtually most of the movie. Uh, if you don't know the plot line of this, the Butch and Sundance and their gang robbed this railroad so many times that they finally send a posse after them, and it's not uncommon for them to be chased, but this group of uh, pursuers was particularly gifted and would not, they could not shake them. And so at each stage of their flight from this group of pursuers, they would ask this really critical question. Who are those guys? You know, and so this became a kind of a recurring thing. Every time they'd go someplace, they'd think, you know, we're, we're traveling across rocks. No one can track us across rocks. And then all of a sudden, this posse of people would come across the rocks, and they'd ask, who are those guys? Uh, this is kind of sort of what happens whenever you see something amazing done You know, I don't know what field you're in or what your area of interest is, but whenever you can see something done in so amazingly, um, such an amazing way, you often will ask the question, who did that? If I'm watching a baseball game and I don't know who's in the outfield and somebody makes a great catch, I always want to say, who was that? Uh, Perhaps you heard a song on the radio that you thought was really beautiful and you might go, who's singing that? Um, This is the nature of just wanting to know where the glory is emanating from. Those of us who've fallen in love at first sight uh, also know that experience. You ask the question, who is that? Who who is that? And and you think, I've got to get to know them. The first service, we had a couple actually go, that was it. You know, and I'm like, yeah, it happens. People see something beautiful, wonderful, They want to know, who is it? What is it? There's a curiosity that is associated with it. This happens to be the central question of John's gospel in the New Testament. It is the question that surrounded Jesus in his earthly ministry. In his hometown of Nazareth, they mocked the notion that he would have been a super prophet. They asked questions like, isn't isn't this the carpenter's son? I mean, who's this guy think he is? Even one of his future disciples, when being told by his brother Philip, hey, we found the Christ, Nathaniel said, he's from Nazareth. Who comes from Nazareth? What good comes from Nazareth? And then we even see in Matthew's gospel evidence of this being a, somewhat of a cultural phenomenon. 
the celebrity status that Jesus had in his three-year earthly ministry manifested itself in a crowd discussion about who he really was. And so in Matthew 16, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, What do people say? Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Answering who is Jesus is the central purpose for the Gospel of John, our new sermon series. It will be our longest ever, six months in length. We will take our time tracking through one of the four historical accounts of Jesus' life. And we know this is John's purpose because at the conclusion of his gospel in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John says, quote, Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are now not written in this book. But these, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As we begin this six-month trek, I owe a substantial uh, debt of gratitude to biblical commentator, the late James Montgomery Boyce. Dr. Boyce was a 20th century Orthodox theologian and a a longtime pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. I'll be referencing his work quite a bit throughout this series and do my best to make sure I attribute when it's a direct quote Uh, His comprehensive work on the Gospel of John is part of many a pastor's library, including mine. Uh, John's Gospel is distinct from the other three, uh, not simply because it's called the Johannine Gospel versus the Synoptic Gospels. The three Gospels that precede it, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are actually interrelated in that Mark was written first and Matthew and Luke kind of use portions of Mark to elaborate and expound. John's gospel differentiates itself by including material that the others didn't. John was one of Jesus' inside guys. He was one of the three that was closest to the Lord in terms of proximity. He was there in the Garden of Gethsemane and there when Jesus was transfigured gloriously before he and Peter and James. John was at the foot of the cross with Jesus' mom. John is privy to some information that the others aren't. Uh, Surprisingly to me, John also omits some things from his Gospels that you'd think, well, wouldn't this be standard if you were going to write a Gospel? There's no birth account of Jesus' life in the Gospel of John. And, And there is no record of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper in the Gospel of John. It's this type of difference that made critics, 19th century and early 20th century Bible critics, uh, sort of explain that or argue that John wasn't reliable, that it probably wasn't written by John. And language John used, for instance, even in this first verse of John 1, when it says the word, that's the Greek word logos, this is a word that the Greek philosopher Philo used in the 2nd and 3rd century. Uh, his followers and all used this language, and so the presumption was John's gospel couldn't have been written before 
Philo and his gang started using this type of terminology. Well, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 put this to rest because it turns out that this type of descriptive language, these types of Greek terms were used before Christ. And they're recorded in all of the documents and all of the fragments of documents found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so it has almost gone 180 since then. Now John's gospel is considered to be one of the most, if not the most, reliable of the gospels. And and so it tells you a little something that if you want to try to disprove something, it's fairly easy to, to pick and poke. But over time, we can discover and... Uh, as is the case in John's life and John's gospel, the geographic and historical and archaeological discoveries demonstrated that John is a trustworthy source of information about who Jesus was. He was a close associate. And there, when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, that his apostles would be anointed, would be blessed, would be led and filled by the Spirit to be the agents through whom the truth would come, the apostolic authority that would be theirs. The Holy Spirit would help them remember all that Jesus taught. And as we begin our journey through John, I've prayed already and will continue to pray that our purpose in studying closely the text is that we would actually get to see more of who God is. Oftentimes in our personal lives or in our devotional lives, or if you're a seeker, you're somebody who's saying, I I wish I just could know what God was really like. And the Gospel of John and the Scriptures throughout are giving us a blueprint, a picture of what God is like, and we see this by learning about the person of Jesus, because Jesus, John testifies, is God in the flesh. John begins his gospel by addressing this central question, making it clear from the beginning, a word that carries significant meaning that Jesus was divine. We believe Jesus was divine for really good reasons. There's some practical ones too. Dr. Boyce has three things that he wants us to see in this first chapter of John. I think there's some great, real, practical application here. One would be the the Son, Jesus, has always been God. One of the things we'll tap into a little bit today is that the Father has always been like the Son. He hasn't changed. It's just that He's revealed Himself more clearly in the Son. And then, because the Son is God... He can satisfy, has the power to satisfy, the power to move in our lives. When you get a compassionate, benevolent person with real authority, you've got yourself a tremendous friend. So we begin the day by looking at these first verses of John and first of all say that the Word displays God's majesty. The Word, the Logos, the one who was create, not created but begotten of God is given to us so that we could see God's majesty. Allow me again to read verses 1 through 3 of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is significant, this first verse, because many occult, and this isn't new, 
to our generation. This was true in the first couple of centuries of the church, and thus, as we'll study the Nicene Creed later this year, the reason for church councils and creeds and confessions is because the church has, over the centuries, had to deal with heresy or error in teaching that was leading people astray. And one of those heresies is the denial of Jesus' divinity. The modern-day manifestation of that is through a group called the Jehovah's Witnesses. They deny that Jesus was, in fact, divine by nature. Uh, That, in and of itself, is innocent, except that they tinker with the Greek text here in John 1, so that it actually says the word was a God, a small g, when all of the earliest manuscripts tell us that John was clearly testifying that Jesus preexisted with the Father. He says... He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him, anything, uh, without him was not anything made that was made. John is obviously saying that before all things were created, Jesus existed. We see by John's choice of words that he was asserting Christ is existing before things because he's co-opting the language of Genesis to equate the Son of God with the Creator of all. Do you notice the similarity? In the beginning was the Word, and then in Genesis 1, it it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This was God, this was John's intention to make certain we knew that Jesus was there as Creator. We also see a third verse that echoes these from the writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Seeing God wasn't something we were able to do until Jesus manifested himself to us humanly. Now, through the Spirit-inspired Gospel of John, we can study the character of God up close and personal as we look at the historic Jesus who ministered throughout Israel. He was God in the flesh. You and I don't need to guess or project our greatest hopes onto what we think or hope God will be. We are told by John... He's everything we could have hoped for and more. When Christians talk about who Jesus is, they don't get their notions from outside of Scripture. We're confident we're getting the revealed expression of who God is because Jesus was God. We don't have to have somebody point us to God. We don't have to have another sort of culty religion tell us, hey, you know what, if you'll follow this path, you might discover God. There are lots of people in the world that might try to point you to God. Jesus is saying, I am God. You need not look any further to see the character and the majesty of God. It's displayed in the Word who became flesh. Our modern philosophical age, which is often referred to as postmodernism, has just simply fueled what existed in modernism of the 19th and 20th century. It's a very human notion that we have some right to create God in our own image, all the while resisting any external source of authority. No one's going to tell me 
what I'm supposed to believe about God. I'm the captain of my fate. All right? I'm in charge. No one is going to tell me what to do. Well, John is very clearly setting before us that Jesus has the right to do that. He's God in the flesh. He addresses this, John, later in this very chapter, which we'll talk about in the weeks ahead. We naturally, as human beings, aren't fond of the bright light. Every time I wake my son up in the morning because his car is blocking me in, I have to open, crack open the door of his room, and you can just see it on his face like, Argh! and this is what the human reaction is to truth. We don't want to hear it, but we need to hear it, and it's good for us, and Jesus has come to bring it. People may say, the God I know is like this, and I would just respond to that with all compassion. If the God anyone describes is not the Jesus of Scripture, then you're not talking about the same God. If God is loving and kind, and we see that in the person of Jesus, and someone over here says, my God is mean and vindictive, then we know we're not talking about the same God. And you have to be willing, as the Christians of old have been willing, for the sake of others to say, that's just wrong. And I know in our day and age, it's a little bit difficult to do that. People are touchy about hearing that something might be right and something might be wrong. But this is where Jesus forces us to go. Is he really God in the flesh or not? And if he is God in the flesh, then he is the manifest expression of the Father. We know John intended for us to believe that Jesus was God in the flesh because in the 14th verse of John, he says that Jesus is the Word. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. The Word in John 1.1 is Jesus. The Greek word logos is used as a word picture of the only begotten Son, See, he was not created. He emanates. He's always been part of God the Father. The one through whom all things were created. Scholar Frederick Godet says that John was describing Jesus Christ as the absolute revelation of God to the world so as to proclaim the matchless grandeur of his appearance in the midst of humanity. You know, my favorite books as a kid were the Curious George books. And I think it's because Curious George and I have a lot in common. We're a smidge mischievous. We end up doing things in our curiosity that get us into trouble. It's kind of what made me a really good, if I can say so myself, radio interviewer back in the day when I was a disc jockey and I had to interview people because there's a part of me that just wants to know. I mean, I'm like, oh, tell me more about that. One thing I continue to do, and it happens here in Los Angeles quite a bit, is if I meet somebody who knows a celebrity, I'll ask them, what are they like in real life? You know, because that's always fun for me to know. You know, what's that like? And what, what are they like behind the camera? And, and that's at times been disappointing to hear, <laughs> you know, because when you find out that your favorite actor is really a jerk in real life, or the politician that you'd hope was going to defy the stereotype of the corrupt politician actually is worse than you imagined he could be. I mean, so sometimes you, you don't want to find out. But one thing's for sure, from a distance, it's nearly impossible to know what celebrities are really like unless you know somebody who knows them. This is not the case anymore as it comes to God. Through Jesus, you no longer have to ask somebody, hey, what's God really like? You can 
meditate on the revealed character of God in the person of Jesus contained in the testimony of an apostle like John, and you can see the majesty of God revealed in Jesus. You don't have to wonder. He isn't distant anymore. He is crossed into life so that we could see him clearly. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In John 14, we'll look at this later this year, verses 8 and 9, after three years of ministry, Philip, who I mentioned earlier, is introducing Nathaniel to this rabble-rouser from Nazareth. Philip says, show us the Father, and this is enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The Word has come to reveal God's majesty. Here's the other thing it's come to do. He has come to reveal and display God's mercy. Verses 2 and 3 say that all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing, not anything made. And without Him was not anything made that was made. It is a logical certainty that John intended to communicate that Jesus was the preexistent God of eternity because something especially the Word, can't be created and also be the one through whom all things are created. Can you follow that? You can't say all things were created through this person and then say they were created too, or else all things weren't created through them because they had to be created as well. You'll have to take that one home and unpack that over coffee. I know that sounds a little heady. I'm just saying... For John's, from John's perspective, he's saying, without question, Jesus has come to show us a particular aspect of God's character with such clarity that we would never, ever have to wonder about it again. From the beginning of creation, human beings have been able to see the beauty of God and the picture of God drawn in all of nature. Life itself is a gift of God's mercy to a broken and sinful people. And yet general revelation, that category of what we can know about God that is seen from nature, was never going to specifically display all that we needed to know about the Lord. The psalmist spoke in general terms about the mercy of God, not in very specifics. He He didn't speak in such a way as that would help us kind of personalize it. Psalm 25, verses 6 and 7, he says, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. We've heard of God's love, but because he is spirit and we are flesh, it is difficult to personalize it or comprehend it in our human minds. And this is one of the central struggles for most people. It's pretty easy as a pastor to conceive of God's love for the people of this church. When I 
have the privilege of meeting with somebody who's hurting and they're doubting that God is patient with them or they're wondering if God will forgive them. It's, it's really easy for me to say, Man, God loves you. He, he's merciful to you. That's not so easily applied to myself. Do you know what I mean? So God has come that we would be able to see this mercy in Christ and comprehend it for ourselves. One of the major applications that Dr. Boyce has made is that God the Father has always been like Jesus. One thing you hear sometimes from skeptics of Christianity is that God, the God of the Old Testament, I'm not a big fan of the God of the New Testament, on the other hand. But there are two sides of the same coin. God has not changed from the Old to the New Testament. He's still holy and just. He's always been tender and merciful. It's just that the Creator was veiled by our humanity so that we couldn't see Him clearly. Additionally, He was veiled by the broken, sinful condition of our world. And therefore, God purposed from all eternity to reveal His mercy more clearly through Jesus. That which the prophet Isaiah talked about when he spoke of the coming Messiah in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his hands and with his wounds we are healed. We, we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The entirety of the Old Testament animal sacrificial system was a foreshadowing of God's intention to send Jesus to be the merciful Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we'll see John the Baptist make this declaration in John's Gospel. But if you attempted to total all of the sins of everyone who would ever believe, no single human being, even if it were possible for a human being to be substituted for another human being, would be able to make the payment. The value of the sacrifice must eclipse the totality of sins. The ransom must be paid in full in order to free the captive. And John in his letter, 1 John 4, 9 through 10 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the one who can satisfy that debt. The divinity in Christ is essential to Christians in part because God has revealed Himself as holy and majestic in our King, but also that Jesus, the perfectly holy God of all creation, is the only one who could completely satisfy the human debt of sin and show us the glory of His mercy and love. Some, perhaps like the Jehovah's Witnesses, would claim that a human being could die as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. But assuming a person could be flawless, a human being could be flawless, which seems oxymoronical, theoretically, you could substitute that one human being for another. But as one of my professors, the late Dr. Roger Nicole said, it would only be enough to ransom one life. Jesus, on the other hand, is eternally valuable as the one through whom all things were made. 
the Creator who eternally coexisted with the Father and the Spirit. Apart from Jesus, apart from the revelation of God given to us in the Gospels, the historic accounts of those who walked with Jesus, apart from that, we're guessing at what God is like. We couldn't know for sure our sins had been forgiven. We couldn't know for sure of the kindness and patience of God towards sinners. This was seen in the human being, the God-man, Jesus, as he walked on this earth and showed love for the brokenhearted. We couldn't know that God had not only planned our rescue but executed the plan flawlessly in Christ unless his divine kindness had decided to reveal and and, and really express his mercy in this way that we would be able to tangibly see it. We now have the full confidence of the love of God. About 15 years ago, when I was working as a youth minister in Florida, I brought a group of students to California on their spring break as part of their senior trip. And we were trekking our way through the airport, and they all started, you know, you know going goo-goo-ga-ga over somebody that was some pop star that was walking through the airport at the same time. And I said, who is that? And somebody told me, and they went chasing after them, trying to get autographs and pictures. And I remember thinking to myself, I really don't have the energy to chase this person down, nor the desire, because I don't think highly enough of them. I probably don't like their music, even though I'm just guessing. Um, And, you know, time has proven that 15 years later, that person is no longer on the cultural landscape, the one-hit wonder. I just didn't have the juice. You know, I didn't have the energy. I had a couple little kids with me, my children, and I was like, I'm not going to chase after a celebrity. I made that choice. They weren't worth the effort and energy and This is effectively where John is going to force the readers of his gospel. He's going to say, is Jesus worthy of your pursuit? If he is the Son of God, yes. If he isn't, no. As James Montgomery Boyce once famously penned, who is Jesus Christ? If he was only a man, then you can safely forget him. If he is God, as he claimed to be, and as all Christians believe, then you should yield your life to him. You should worship and serve him faithfully. Welcome to the Gospel of John. Let us pray.